Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I've gone on holiday by mistake because this week (laughs) I'm going to place much of the responsibility for talking about this film onto Dan's shoulders because I suspect he's got uh, a stronger relationship with it, to it, than I have... Dan, do you love this film? I I do love this film. I love it very, very much. It was a very important part of my late teens, early 20s. And uh, watching it again, it's been a few years since I've seen it. Mm. It was one of those peculiar experiences where there's a future echo and every line is happening in my head. Oh, I love most those. Of, most yeah. of the time, like three or four seconds ahead of when it's said. But in some instances, you know, there are some lines that just rattle around your head all the time. <laughs> now, <laughs> and if, they get excited that they're about to be spoken again. If this was Batman from 1989, I would be right there with you. But uh, it's not. So, um, yeah, I don't have as strong a connection to it. Um, it is very much of my era but it wasn't really a big thing in my friendship group. We were more kind of into horror and Scorsese movies and stuff. And I think one of the kind of appeals of With Nell and I is it is very much a a film for friends and for groups and people who like to quote it uh, amongst each other. Um, Whereas I didn't really have that. I I watched it once um, because of its uh, reputation um, when I was probably too young to appreciate it. Didn't really connect with it at all. It seemed a bit posh for my tastes <laughs> i know that sounds <laughs> ridiculous to say <laughs> um and i don't want to be classist here but uh, back then uh, at that age it was just well this is just posh people getting pissed um which obviously it isn't that's not what it is and you know i really did enjoy it and admire it on this revisit but i think people uh, listening to this don't want to hear me uh, they want to hear you dan um because I knew that you would love this film. I knew this was a Dan film. So tell me about your past with it and, and you know, when you first saw it and, and those important memories. I've been, I've been trying to remember exactly what age I would have been when I first saw it. And I, I think I must have been about, I must have been about 15. Mm. Um, the Harbour Lights in Southampton, which has been mentioned a few times on the podcast, uh, did a, a retrospective screening of it, I think before a bigger re-release happened. Right. Um, and Ralph Brown, uh, who plays Danny, came and introduced it in character. Oh, awesome. Um, so the first time I saw it, I, like my parents had seen it and said, oh, you'll love this. <laughs> so uh, I don't remember if they drove me to Southampton or even if they were there, but uh, but I went along uh, and watched it, and it was amazing. And for about a month, I was the only person I knew who'd seen it. Right. And I, and I fucking loved it. Mm. And then it got its re-release, and it sort of spread through my like my social circles and the quoting started to happen. Yeah. And I actually found that really annoying <laughs> like when people, when people enjoy music in a different way from you and you're like, you're enjoying it wrong. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know what you mean. And um, there, there is a little bit of enjoying it wrong on the extras, isn't there? But we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was always one of those, like it was one of those go-tos, you know, there are films when you're like, Oh my God, you haven't seen dot, dot, dot. Uh, and you get to watch it again. Yeah. Um, Jen, my wife, uh, will ask people, instead of what's your favourite film, she'll say, what's the film you've seen the most? Yeah. Um, because that's almost more telling, and it's definitely easier to answer than what's your favourite film, because that's such a transitory position. And I'd say that this film has the second billing on films I've seen the most. I think I've probably seen this film almost more than anything else. And, and um, what, what's top billing? <laughs> it's Sweden, heaven and hell. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fingers um, crossed for an Arrow video release of that one at some point. Oh my fucking God, <laughs> I would give an arm for that to get I the, think... the remaster. Now that Arrow's drifting into the arena of 4K as well, imagine a, a 4K <laughs> remastered edition of Sweden, heaven and hell. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time we really met and spent any kind of time together, which was uh, a can. I can't remember what year. What would it have been? 2010, something like that? Yeah, um, maybe. 
and uh, it's either 2010 or 2011 but anyway um we kind of uh met bonded through a love of, of weird cinema and spent the whole day and probably up until about four o'clock in the morning together you me and jen and uh yes yeah, so i do have vivid memories of you showing me um elements from sweden heaven and hell and playing music from it in your can dormitory room at you know yeah. three o'clock and in the morning you can't travel without a copy of sweden <laughs> heaven and hell <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah i could have guessed but um yeah no i i you know it, it this is one of those films that just had an absolute massive impact uh, on popular culture and watch rewatching it now it is kind of an unusual film to connect with so many people it just had a huge cult following i remember the poster being on college room walls when i was at art school i'm, I'm sure it was similar for you um why yeah. do you think it, it, it connected with the the mainstream in such a big way well i think it's one of those ones where you can see kind of what you need to in it i right. definitely had a very different experience watching it when i was younger uh, and I think that when you're when you're young, especially if you're sort of just discovering alcohol and drugs and like you know uh, hedonistic socialization, then it speaks very differently to you than when you're in your forties, uh, when the pathos and the idea of like needing to shed the things that hold you back, even if they're things you love, becomes the the more dominant message. So I think it's. Yeah, it, it's definitely a um, it's definitely multifaceted, but it's it's one of those things where it looks different depending where you're standing in your life. Yeah, that's that's a very very interesting point because that would explain the success because it had that generational appeal, um, yeah. and where it didn't have an appeal to me when I was younger. Um, you know, in, in terms of British cinema in the late '80s and early '90s, I was really into stuff like you know, ID and the firm and the young Americans, <laughs> you know, like stuff that yeah. felt like it crossed over with the American gangster stuff before that became like a cottage industry post Lockstock. Um, but yeah, so this, and I wasn't a big, you know, drug person as people who listen to the podcast <laughs> regularly may have guessed. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I did like a drink, but I didn't particularly enjoy watching people drinking. Um, so there was nothing there for me really. But now... Uh, as I'm older, yeah, the, the the strain of sadness, I just, I can't believe how I missed, you know, that that beautiful element to it. And some of the dialogue, you know, maybe I appreciate that more now I've written more, how hard it is to, to write so many amazing lines and, and so much poetry. Um, yeah, yeah I, I definitely, definitely appreciated it more this time. And it's certainly digging into the extras and stuff as well. I found it all quite moving um, and very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that it's, you know, it's about uh, needing to seize opportunity before you allow the distractions of life to, mm. to, to make you miss that, you know, b before you let them pass you by. Mm. Um, and I, I, I had known that it was semi-autobiographical from mm. Robinson. I don't think I'd realized until I, I, delved into the extras on the disc to quite what level it was autobiographical yeah that had a um, big impact on me as well actually yeah that's really interesting and then on top of that i'd heard the the version of it i'd heard was that grant was allergic to alcohol yes i'd he, heard that he too yeah total yeah which i believe is something that he is an aside he makes in one of his in one of his books right um but then to hear Robinson talk about it, his Richard E. Grant's father was an alcoholic, and yeah. that is the reason for his his uh, sort of dispassion for for booze. Mm. So that again makes it a really interest that that casts a very interesting light across the film. That that this was a, I mean, it's a career high for absolutely everybody involved. No it one is. involved in this film, I mean, I say that no one above the line on this film has has done anything that can equal it. Yeah, um, and that that innately makes it slightly more personal. But the idea that Grant was dealing with this stuff, you know, was was confronting this thing that had obviously been such a big thing on his life. That that makes it, uh, you know, a, a very introspective piece as well. Yeah, exactly, and uh, yeah, com completely, and that's something that I really connected to, and 
Um, yeah, I think let's let's talk a little bit about those performances and stuff because Richard E. Grant in this film is astonishing. Yeah. Um, just absolutely unreal. From you know, from the moment he enters, he is absolutely mesmerizing and captivating and you know the the drunk acting when he's in the car is just so brilliantly done um for especially considering he 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 did avoid alcohol um though obviously he did drink what was it like a pint of vodka or something because uh, robinson insisted that he needed to have some sort of sense memory of being some drunk experience in, in a chemical the, memory yeah <laughs> um yeah, uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but um, yeah, he's just just an, it's an unreal performance, and and like you say, it, it, Richard E. Grant is kind of a funny, uh, funny kind of icon, because I don't know if he's ever done anything good apart from this. Like I was digging, <laughs> I was looking at like his other roles and stuff, and he's one of he's like a, uh, a an Ian McKellen or a Patrick Stewart or someone like that where. You just assume that they've done. I mean, not that Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, Stewart haven't. I'm saying that in my head, I put him in that category of actor. Whereas actually, he's been in quite a lot of shit. Um, yeah, I mean th- that's the thing. He's been for a lot of his career. He's had to be quite a jobbing actor. Yeah, but it's very easy when you love someone in ro- one role and aren't super familiar with the rest of their oeuvre to just assume that they're that good in everything. Yeah. Exactly, and and yeah, just just absolutely astonishing. Um, and McGann's great as well, you know. Um, yeah. I think he gets overshadowed um, by Richard E. Grant, um, but his is a very kind of sensitive and um, a, a surprisingly layered performances. It, it was more layered than I remembered it actually. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's one thing that benefits from the from the remaster. Yeah, because you you've got all like i saw it that one time on the big screen and then it's been vhs pretty much every other time since since then but there's there's a lot of what sam and i like to refer to as eye acting (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) um there's some fantastic like watching someone realize something moments in this and this is mentioned on the extras but mcgann would always say that grant uh reacting to mcgann getting the audition was the best acting in the film but there are some fantastic moments where McGann goes through exactly the same level of shift all yeah. done with uh nothing but the eye muscles a hundred percent that and it, i didn't even put it down to that but that's exactly what it is it is this 2k remaster and it's got one of those things that i absolutely love on releases like this where in the documentaries you see footage of the film that you know basically vhs quality and that's kind of how you remember seeing it and you compare it to the absolute glow of this remaster like from that opening shot that opening shot is beautiful on this release uh whereas you know before the whole film looked a little bit muddy um so it's a very dark movie yeah and and again there's a few people on the disc talk about how uh when handmade films saw the first set of rushes yeah uh, coming from set, they were horrified that it was, you know, they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah. And one can only assume that they were seeing them on tape, you know? They were seeing them on, nearly, if they were lucky, like, you know, uh, like um, like a high-quality magnetic, but still just, you know, analogue tape, whereas now we get to see it at, you know, 35mm quality. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the quotey stuff you mentioned quoting it and then it kind of uh annoyingly traveled across your friends what are some of the lines in this that you've quoted the most do you think dan (laughs) i mean you know gone on holiday by mistake obviously yeah uh i had a friend who through most of my late teens early 20s would just occasionally come out with monty you terrible cunt (laughs) (laughs) At fantastically inopportune moments. I have a... So he is... uh, I won't say his name. He's a a journalist, a relatively respected journalist (laughs) for a number of quite big broadsheets uh, now. But when we were in our... um, like late teens, early twenties, he worked in quite a posh pub in Winchester where I went to, where a lot of the Winchester College uh, teachers would visit. Um, It was 
famed for being the the local for David Bowie and Iman when they were staying in their Winchester place. Like it was quite an upmarket gaff. Mm. And if memory serves correctly, and I wasn't there for this, but the anecdote went that someone came up to the bar and said something quite early in the morning on a day when he was suffering a little from a, a heavy night out the night before. And they said something to him that he mistook as a, a trigger for one of his various sort of withnail-esque profanic um, outbursts, <laughs> ca- pro- profane catchphrases. And thinking he was addressing a friend, he shouted at a random member of the public, tell me the size of your cock and balls. <laughs> <laughs> In a very withnail voice, as, as he would always have said it. And I believe that was the last day he worked at that pub. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that leads me quite nicely. Like when I was watching um, the film, I was reminded of one of your um, most oft quoted stories. I'm trying to work out a way to describe it without giving away the punchline. Um, <laughs> but it, it's very with esque and I would like you to commit it to posterity by uh, repeating it on the podcast. Um, it involves someone shouting out something at someone when they're driving. Oh, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, this is uh, quite distant to me, just a story that I particularly love, but it is quite with Nalian. Um, I... Uh, I learned this on the set of Prometheus because I was lucky enough to be able to bring a bunch of my students from an art college that I uh, I teach at um, onto set as as junior techs on Prometheus. So they were coming in and, and helping with the the spacesuits, the costumes, uh, making all the armor pieces. And uh, and I was chatting to one of them, uh, and I'm going to have to use her name in this story, but it's not a name she goes by anymore, just because it was a nickname. But uh, she she used to go by the name Totty, um, uh, and her father was uh, a man of the cloth, uh, and she was visiting uh, home from, I th- presumably, a boarding school, I don't remember, um, and she let her father know that she was going to be coming back with a friend uh, to stay the weekend, and he said, oh, I'll come and pick you up from the station, uh, and she said, oh, there's no need for that, uh, we'll just, you know, we'll make our way back, and he said, no, 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 tell me what time you're coming in, I'll, I'll come and pick you up. Uh, and she again protested and said it was not necessary. So he sets out in his car anyway to to go and pick them up from the station, and he's driving along, and he sees these two young women, you know, walking in the opposite direction from the from the station or walking in the appropriate direction from the station, and uh, he pulls up alongside them and winds the window down and just says, and I will do her impression of her own father, winds the window down and says, Totty! At which point two young women who are not his daughter and her friend turned around and said, I beg your pardon. And he said, I'm terribly sorry. I was looking for Totty. <laughs> and sped off. Uh, oh. and I, I, I presume he was dressed as a priest. I'm so, so glad that has been given to the, the precious arrowheads. I love that story so much. And it does sound like a cutscene from, uh, from a Withnell sequel. Um, yeah, brilliant. Should we dig into the extras a little bit? Um, because there's quite a lot here, isn't there? Um, what did you like the most? Uh, I mean, to be honest, it was Robinson's commentary. It was absolutely yeah. fantastic. Oh, um, God, yeah. yeah, just absolutely fantastic. There, there, were lo- like, there were loads of things I'd heard, but I'd not heard his version of them or the full extent of them. I don't think I knew much about his history as an actor either, so I didn't know about... And again, this is mentioned in the other commentary and a couple of the other extras... Um, it sort of acknowledged his like some of his early experiences acting mm. that have to some extent shaped how he sees the acting, how he's represented the acting world and the, the to some extent cutthroat nature of the acting world in the film. But yeah, it's a very um, it's an incredibly illuminating um, episode, uh, both from the fact that like I've never really thought about it as a period film. You know, it's an eighties picture. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's set in the, in the at the very end of the sixties, the tail end of the sixties. It's obviously very much about the end of an era, and yep. sort of like trying to hang on to something that's gone when it's not necessarily what's the best idea. You know, there's that's kind of one of the seeds of all of that pathos. But it's yeah, it, it's a um, it's it's an astonishingly well put together film. And to him talking about how like he had to self fund some sequences because they just ran out of money. Uh, to talk about shots he didn't have the budget to get 
uh, to tell the story, to talk about dissatisfaction with the like you know th- just things as simple as the weather or or some of the locations they they ended up with just because that that you know they were absolutely hamstrung. It was an incredibly independent film, uh, and I think to some extent the the soundtrack is one of the ways in which the movie tricks you into thinking it's a bigger affair than it is, and some of that is the position. Um, that uh, Hendrix has kind of taken in the modern cultural canon versus where he maybe was at the beginning of the 80s in Britain, um, even though some of the soundtrack pieces they they licensed were like some amongst the most expensive elements of the film. But also, you've got to remember that, you know, they've got a Beatle as an executive producer. So yeah. it's not like they don't have a through line into the music industry. There's yeah. a really... There was a... There was an exhibition of a few years back of uh, photographs from the from on set of Withnail, and there's a there's a lovely picture of them all sort of like just joshing about with Ringo <laughs> on set because you know that that was the kind of the world they were they were moving in they were they were being essentially bankrolled by some of the biggest names in the music industry. Yeah, I mean, there's so much uh, in what you just said that I want to sort of talk about. Uh, firstly, the Jimi Hendrix thing. I don't know if. Um, I don't know if it's in the extras, um, but this is just something that I knew. Um, apparently, Hendrix's estate, his family, this was the film that inspired them to take more control over Hendrix's music because they didn't like the drug associations. Um, so this was a real turning point for the use of Hendrix's music. Um, Interesting. And, and yeah, just that, that Blue Underground dvd commentary that they've ported over um as you say it's wonderful it is an interview commentary um with a guy from blue underground interviewing uh bruce as they watch the film and normally you know they're not my favorites but this is an excellent example of the form and it's exactly as you say you know there's some lovely analysis of the choices and influences, um, you know, from the get-go. Like, I love the bit where he's talking about the composition of the shot where um, I is in the background and the kettle's in the foreground. Oh, at the, the beginning, flame, yeah, amazing. You know, and, and the fact that he thought about the composition to, to that level. On his directorial debut, a film that he announced to the crew guys, I don't know what I'm doing. You're going to need to help me. Um, you know, the fact that he had that level of, of, of kind of poetry in terms of the, the composition. I always love that kind of stuff where it's showing yeah. and not telling. And, you know, it, it's trying to do stuff with your subconscious. Yeah, no, really, really great commentary. Um, well, and, 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 and by his God. own words, he's like, there's a good chance he was quite like drunk for a lot of the filming. <laughs> Yeah, and for a lot of the writing and for a lot of everything. Um, yeah, definitely a lot of the inspiration. Yeah. And yeah, another thing in what you just said that kind of just struck me as we're speaking that I didn't really consider as a factor for why why I enjoyed it and connected with it uh, more this time is that I have now had more experiences with actors and it's weirdly representative of actors <laughs> you know not to insult any actors that i know uh you're, you're all lovely people and uh, i love working with you uh however there are certain strains of actors that are very well represented by this film um is that uh, a controversial statement to make do you think dan <laughs> i mean if you had if you had made it as a uh, an all-inclusive sweeping statement perhaps but i think you backpedaled just the right amount <laughs> yeah i'm good at that um yeah no it's it, it and and you know i'm not saying that everyone's like with now um you know some people are like i uh but yeah anyway let's stop talking about that before Absolutely. i get myself I'm, blacklisted i i had always uh to to jump sideways for you slightly sam thank you thank uh, you I, I'd, <laughs> I'd always liked the use of Journey's End as the play that McGann is auditioning yeah. for because this movie is obviously about the end of a journey, yeah. that journey being their friendship. But uh, I did a little bit of reading about it and it's interesting to note that Journey's End is noted as being a launcher of careers. Um, specifically, a very young Laurence Olivier played the yeah. lead uh, the role that McGann gets in the 1928 West End premiere 
of the of the play. In fact, not even West End premiere. It moved to West End of the next year, I think, to like the the very first um, theatre that that um, uh, Journey's End played in in 1928. So it's you know there's there's a lot being done there with with what this means for him that he is able to escape this means he's moving to such bigger things. Yeah, that's lovely. And yeah, I found it fascinating that uh, on the... So there's another commentary from Kevin Jackson who wrote uh, the BFI book about the film. Um, And he talked about the Shakespearean influence on Bruce. But then Bruce... Um, says, I think it's in uh, The Peculiar Memories of Bruce Robinson. There's a bit where he suddenly starts talking about how he hates plays. He's glad he didn't get into theatre because he hates plays. I'm like, but this is one of the most, you know, play-like movies I think I've seen and certainly has those influences and and that knowledge and stuff. Well, he describes describes that monologue at the end as being his favourite piece of writing ever. Yeah exactly so and um, it wasn't always the ending either like they they changed that during the shoot and he and and it was because that was a favorite piece of his that that and you know obviously the i I will never play the dame line that was the reason that that got sort of jammed in there as an alternate ending the i don't want to say what the original ending would have been you'll have to listen to the commentaries but holy fuck yeah and and yeah it's just such a perfect ending and um you know there's some talk on the extras about, um, you know, with Nell being like a bad actor, you know, he, he never would have been successful type thing. Um, and I just think that's a weird misreading of the film because for me, that ending really underlines the tragedy of it because he's his own worst enemy um, because yeah. he can deliver a monologue with that level of power, with that level of emotion whether that's because he now has emotion within him because he's just said goodbye to I, I don't know, but there's lots of ways to read that moment. And I think it's really important that I very much state on the record that I love actors and <laughs> you, you are my lovely actors. You are a wide spectrum of, of types and personalities. Um, and all I'm saying is that every now and then you meet a with now and every now and then you meet an I, uh, but, but, but not too often. Um, well, I, yeah. I, going back to what you were saying about about saying that Withnell maybe wasn't a was never a good actor, mm. um, I think that that's possibly Robinson carrying over what he was talking about from the friend who inspired Withnell, yes, because he yes. says was never a good actor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and given that that wasn't the original ending, it's readable that when the script and the novel before it were written, mm. that uh, that it wasn't ever meant to be that he was a good actor but right. by shifting that ending at the 11th hour they have completely changed the reading of the film and while i'm normally all for a, as miserable an ending as you can get yeah. i actually think that they definitely made the right choice it's such a beautiful moment i mean it's still quite a downbeat ending oh it it's is still very much look at how this guy has fucked away his life yeah <laughs> because you know there's so much untapped talent there the fact that he yeah. can draw this and do such a you know he says I'm a, I'm a trained actor reduced to the stakes of a bomb but it's like by his own hand yeah he's very very much like reduced himself to the states of a the status of a bum. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, I I'm sure that part of the decision making process came from what we discussed before. Uh, that being uh, Richard E. Grant's astonishing talent and his own ability to to deliver that moment. But you do get a sense reading between the lines every now and then across uh, these various extras that yeah robinson and, and grant may have had a slightly strange relationship yeah I'm, i guess so because the thing is you've got to remember that this is robinson's debauchery laid out laid bare yeah and if you think about you know grant as someone who had been a, a party to someone else destroying their life yeah. because of these kind of decisions then that's you know that's an interesting that's got to be an interesting dynamic on set not to mention that even though it's a genuinely hilarious film robinson was doing everything he could to stop the crew from enjoying it yeah. <laughs> because because he didn't want the actors playing to the crew yeah yeah 
Yeah. So, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, often through uh, restrictions and through tensions and, you know, those are some of the occasional magic ingredients that go into creating something as unique and as, you know, long-lasting and timeless as this film. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if you changed any personality in the mix, it, it wouldn't have the magic and the power it has. It's just this perfect unification of all of these qualities. Um, and listen to me waxing lyrical about a film that I watched once as a teenager and just thought, oh, it's posh people getting pissed. Um, and, you know, now I fully understand um, the power of it. So thank you, Arrow Video, for uh, releasing it and, and putting all of these extras together for it because they do add something. Um, some some uh, extras add less than others. I'd say <laughs> I demand to have some booze is probably a one-watch experience. Um, did you watch that one, Dan? <laughs> I, I watched some of it. <laughs> and, and that's amazing because it's only six minutes long. <laughs> yep. Well, we've got limited time for these things. <laughs> I, I would like to say that I watched some of it at one and a half speed. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I'm, in a way, I'm glad it's on here um, as a weird snapshot of the time but I will never, ever, ever watch it again. But it's part of uh, a, a lovely selection, so I am glad it's included because uh, it's one of the With Now Weekend kind of documentaries produced yeah. by Channel, Channel 4. 4. And oh, for the days when whole weekends were centred around a cult classic film on Channel 4. Can you imagine? Um, that was 99, wasn't it? That yeah. Out. Yeah, 99. Yeah. And even though it's... one years ago, oh, Sam. Oh, God, don't say that. Don't say that. It was quite weird watching this and seeing all the fashions and, and all the rest of it because yeah. even though it's at the tail end of the 90s it is very 90s everything the editing the, the well, celebrities like they've chosen culturally yeah sorry Sam no no go on culturally decades run kind of one to one but but stylistically decades tend to sort of operate from like three or four to three or four yeah so like the the 80s still look like the 70s until about 83 yeah the set the, you know the 90s still look like the 80s until about 93 94 and so on so you know 99 they've not shrugged off the 90s at that point no and it's very you know like the music is very brit pop and you know the the sort of design of the title cards is very loaded like it's it's really 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 90s but yeah uh, the the with now and us uh documentary is very enjoyable um nice reflections from people involved in the film normal fans and celebrity fans um yeah i, I really did enjoy that one um my favorite it's very a close call between this and the commentary that you mentioned, but as you went for that, I'll go for this. Uh, the Peculiar Memories of Bruce Robinson is a yeah. great portrayal of an artist with really good contributors, including Roland Joffe and key producers he's worked with, um, and obviously Bruce himself. And it's really interesting, like, listening to him or, or watching him in this, and he's a little bit bolshy and, you know, all the stuff about typing with his nose and all that stuff. And comparing it to his personality on that Blue Underground commentary, where he's more reflective and kind of calmer and quieter. Yeah, you get the sense that there are a lot of different people raging within Bruce Robinson, and it's very much reflected in the film. Yeah, that's a that's a fair statement. Yeah. What else have we got, Dan? With Nail on the Pier, uh, another fan-focused thing. Again, bit throwaway. Uh, Interesting, but, though. I mean, I, that's the thing. I like that Arrow literally just include everything they can get their hands on. That's great. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like I say, like, you know, I'm glad all of these With Now Weekend documentaries are on there. And even though that is throwaway, it is another 90s snapshot. Very, very 90s, you know. And, yeah, the, the film, like I say, it's set in 69. It was released in, what, 87? Um, and, and this stuff is... is uh, shot in 99 and it's weird that it's that stuff is the most dated stuff on <laughs> this disc everything else is timeless the film is so timeless you don't think of it as an 80s film do you really no i never i never did and and even now like it's it feels so of the, the late 60s yeah it, it so perfectly encapsulates 
I mean, I say that. I wasn't born in the fucking 60s. I was barely born in the 70s. Um, it's, yeah, but it's it does feel like a, like a contemporary film. It yeah. feels like a film that was made in the era that it was set in. Yeah, 100%. Or it could be, you know, part of the, the 70s wave of auteur movies. You know, it feels like a very 70s movie as well. It's just bizarre to think it's late 80s. Um, but, but yeah, because it, I guess it like for it to be made in 69 would have been unduly prescient. But <laughs> if you imagined it being made in like, you know, 72, looking yeah, back exactly. in 69, yeah, yeah. you could imagine it being written in 69. Yes, exactly. Made in 72, 73. It's 100%. got the darkness uh, and the waking of of the of the 70s. Yeah. Whereas the 60s were all about like sort of hedonism and free love and uh, psychedelics and you know fuck the system yeah. and then the 70s with this sort of especially in America I know yeah, this oh is God, an yeah. American film but you've got the sort of post-Vietnam uh, like sort of drop down everyone's feeling a bit like the drugs that are available are coming much more chemical yeah. so there's there's much less of this sort of like natural connectivity between people um, even to the point, I don't think I realized until I watched Robinson's commentary that uh, the drugs they're talking about before they go into that Irish pub at the beginning are uh, uh, antidepressants, a prescription antidepressants that yeah. they're talking about talk- taking so that they could just fall asleep until the, they've got money to pay the electricity bill. Yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah, no, 100%. And just to round off the the extras, there's also a, a, a lengthy interview with the production designer, Michael Pickwode, it's like 21 minutes. It's a very simple interview set up, but a fantastic perspective on a relatively yeah. underrated element of the film, um, which obviously looks even better in this 2K print, um, which, like I say, absolutely glows this film. It's gorgeous. So, yeah, nice to get that insight into the production design of the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like the at the beginning of one of the Channel 4 extras, uh, Robinson says, like, you know, it's a very badly shot film. But he's massively selling it short. It's it's a really good looking movie, yeah. And I think the aesthetic shift between London and the countryside is really nice. You've got this lovely, like low light, warm, like warm orange glow to all of the interiors of the countryside. This beautiful hot, like firelight darkness, yeah. Uh, and this really crisp countryside stuff, very blue skies, um, like you know between rainstorms <laughs> but uh but in london it's all a very gray palette you know it, it's very muted it's very sad uh, and and yet you've got these daubings of bright paint on the inside of their apartment they're desperately trying to like liven their own lives up whether it's through like cack-handed aesthetic or pharmaceutical mismanagement mm. Yeah, no, I I thought it was absolutely bizarre when he said that it's it's a badly shot film. You know, there's there's being self-deprecating and there's just you know completely misreading a, a piece <laughs> of art that you've created. Like, yeah, I think it's wonderfully shot. Right, should we go into recommendations? And I'm going to go first this week, Dan. I'm not going to make you the do, s- Sam. same mistake I made last time, but go on. Bef- before you do, I've got an anecdote. Oh, uh, yes, please. I was chatting to my staff in the workshop. And I mentioned that we were doing with Nell and I, mm. and I have a young mold maker working for me who is absolutely top class. He's fucking fantastic. Mm. And he just mentioned that his father, who I believe is an optician, right. used to uh, routinely uh, fit and then also mend Bruce Robinson's glasses. Okay. Um, and so Bruce Robinson had a thing that he would say to my mold shop supervisor's father every time he came into the shop and had his glasses fixed for free. Love it. And he'd say, you're a good man. If you keep fixing my glasses for free, you'll die in the gutter. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel that that kind of like warm pathos is an underpinning element of this film. I mean, uh, that encapsulates everything. It encapsulates the struggle going on within him that I perceive from this disc. It sums up the struggle between Withnell and I. That is the perfect anecdote to lead into recommendations. Thank you, Dan. That is great. I am going to go first because, you know, uh, yeah, uh, not going to let you choose i think i i wonder if you're going to take one of mine i, I, am. I suspect you might i am i know i am i've got such a strong feeling um is it guest house paradiso 
No, it's not. <laughs> okay, that I is mean, really. It's a beautiful. It's a there's a there's a heavy bottom energy. Yeah, and I'm not just talking about the backstories about his experiences on Romeo and Juliet. Yes, and we're going to swiftly move on. Um, but yes, um, Whipnell and I has a, a kind of sitcom setup, doesn't it? Um, and it is yeah. compared to Bottom in the brilliant extra with Sam Bain of Peep Show fame talking about the influence it had on his show. How did I not connect Danny with Superhands? Like, it's such yeah. an obvious influence. But yeah, it, even if I hadn't watched that extra... The, the star is so bottom. The bit where they're in the kitchen just reminded me of that wonderful, wonderful sitcom so much. I love it. I love Bottom. It's amazing. Um, oh, so I, I cried, Sam, at the end of Bottom. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it's it's one of the things that connected us, uh, our, our friendship, um, our, <laughs> our shared love of, you know, Bottom and the Dangerous Brothers and all of that um, stuff. Um, you know, Guest House Paradiso is terrible, obviously but it's also <laughs> brilliant in its grotesquerie if the first a film, two thirds are brilliant yeah yeah it, it, you know it, it 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 it's it's i'm not saying it's a masterpiece but i am saying that if a film was made in the withnail sink it would be guest house paradiso <laughs> i demand that you watch it um <laughs> yeah that's my first recommendation, wholehearted I, given, recommendation based on this. Given film. how laissez-faire you've been with recommending TV series or TV <laughs> series recently, I'm yes. devastated that you didn't just recommend Bottom to our American listeners. God, I'm an idiot. Yeah, of course I should have just done that. But you know, <laughs> take that as a tacit recommendation underneath. If oh, you haven't seen it's Bottom, a, it's a for the love of God, it's on Netflix. Just watch it. It's incredible. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Oh, I might, I might revisit it. It's been a few years. I, I read it all of Kevin Turvey a little while ago. Lovely. And oh, so you can now take this opportunity to do the recommendation that you thought I was going to do. What is it? Well, thematically, it's very close to bottom. Oh, good. Uh, it's 1945's Lost Weekend. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> what a great idea. Yes. Yeah. Uh, very on similar. The surface, <laughs> <laughs> on the surface... There are a lot of things that sort of connect yet don't connect Lost Weekend to With Nell and I. With Nell and I is about two uh, alcoholics who accidentally go on holiday. Uh, Lost Weekend is about one alcoholic who accidentally doesn't go on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Billy Wilder's incredible film uh, stars Ray Milland. Uh, Ray Milland also never played the Dane, but he does mention Hamlet in the film. Uh, and he did present uh, Olivier, who starred in the first edition of first production of journey's end with his oscar for hamlet yeah. on the set of richard the fourth that is immense what a recommendation uh, <laughs> what a film but, but as well ultimately it's a it, yeah it's a film about self-destructive alcoholism and uh, that almost ends with a suicide it yeah it's just yeah incredible film and it's on eureka's masters of cinema range yes I believe, it is Blu-ray, yeah yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, lovely um, Blu-ray. Really nicely done. Really nicely put together. That's a great one. And uh, my next recommendation is a film that I've recommended before, but not based on a film. So, you know, this is a fresh uh, kind of double bill recommendation. And I don't think there are many more appropriate double bills than this outside of Lost Weekend. I deeply wish I'd have picked that. Well done, Dan. Um, but no, I'm recommending that you follow with Nell and I uh, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, that may sound mental, but they are set in the same year. It also features a reasonably level-headed performer who has to look after a neurotic drunk actor uh, with extended driving scenes and a great soundtrack. And it ends, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, skip forward 30 seconds. Uh, (laughs) They both end with hippies invading a household uh, and someone speaking to a fence. So, uh, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, double billet with with Nell and I, they are weirdly appropriate together. Um, Dan, what is your next recommendation? (laughs) Uh, My next recommendation is uh, another drugs movie. I mean, this isn't with Nell and I, isn't a drugs movie, it's a drink movie with occasional drugs in it. 2002's Spun by Jonas Ackerland is definitely a drugs movie. It's 
more intense than with Mel and I. But I was I was thinking about you know drug films, drug comedies. To be honest, a lot of them fall kind of flat with me. And was never a massive fan of the Cheech and Chong pictures. Uh, although you know all of them have a, a few great gags in them. Yeah, like the idea of a of a of a pure drug comedy kind of leaves me a little flat. But Spun has this sort of absurdist humour in it. It's not as overtly funny as with Mel and I, but it's got some uh, like fantastic absurdism in it. Mm. It does have some very funny stuff in it. I actually revisited it a little while ago, um, and it's a more difficult watch than I remembered. <laughs> right. But um, but it's it's great, and it's got a fantastic young cast as well. Jason Schwartzman, uh, the late Brittany Murphy um yeah loads of uh, john leguizamo loads and loads of people you'll recognize from the music scene um obviously because of Ackerland's background in in music videos um yeah it's uh, i think it's it's pay on prime i don't think there's a blu-ray of it mm-hmm. um i'd be delighted if someone would tell me of one because i i feel like i'd like to see an hd version of it i've only got an old dvd but yeah it's it's a um it's a, it's a difficult watch but it's a good watch uh, and again, it's about addiction and the and the terrible choices people make. Yes, and and yes, it's very important, especially after our last um, uh, our last episode, the game. We got some tweets suggesting that I was recommending that people do drugs in in our humorous asides in in the last episode. I do not recommend that people do drugs, and in fact, I recommend that people watch the distant drummer, a movable scene, which is. Um, uh, Robert Mitchum narrating an anti-hippie, anti-drug documentary <laughs> series. Um, by all means, wasn't he watch... absolutely fucked up on acid when he <laughs> narrated that? Well, like by something all... like maybe not acid, but maybe like methamphetamines or benzoate or something. Like, well, I, I, I know I believe... he, he was a booze hound, and I think he did get busted for marijuana possession. So if you know that, there is a, an extra uh, layer of ironic enjoyment to be had watching oh maybe it's maybe it's that that film was his community service for the marijuana bust could have been it could have been but yes by all means watch it ironically and laugh that element but hopefully in doing so you'll learn something from it drugs are bad kids drugs are bad right dan (laughs) past couple of weeks what have you been watching? Well, this okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do a sideline recommendation. This isn't one of my film recommendations. It's not even a film, but uh, I think it's Vinegar Syndrome put out a, uh, a compilation Blu-ray of old uh, U.S. government anti-drug scare films. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is uh, I think it's just called Drug Stories, maybe Drug Stories Volume One, uh, and it's a mixed bag. Some are a bit dull, but some are fucking great. There's an amazing Alice in Wonderland animation on there, which is very like worth it alone. But yeah, that's that's got lots of uh, fun, ironic watches. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. Past but, couple of weeks, what have you been watching? Yeah, and like, I, I slightly wonder if maybe this is something you've recommended in the past. Like maybe you saw it before, like it, when it was new or before it came out, and you mentioned it because it's been on my list for ages, and I couldn't remember why it was on my list. Okay. So it's possible that it's one of the ones that gets added to my watch list. Uh, because you recommended it to me on the podcast, yeah. or you know, to everybody. But it's Lorcan Finnegan's Vivarium from 2019. Uh, that wasn't one of mine. Well, I feel good about that then, because especially considering the other one is one that's been mentioned before on the podcast. But yeah, uh, Vivarium's uh, absolutely lovely. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots in a sort of like absolutely down to the bone, bare knuckle, minimalist, high concept sci-fi horror. Um, the criticism it gets is that the the characters aren't particularly interesting and that nothing happens. But if you like weird, slow burn, uh, high concept sci-fi, you'll be totally ready for that. <laughs> yeah, Eisenberg and Poots play a medium level likable young couple who are looking for their first home and end up kind of stuck in a, uh, a gated community uh, that doesn't appear to have any other occupants. And uh, and then they receive a, a peculiar package uh, to the house that they were looking at that changes their environment. I'm being much vaguer than the trailer is. So if you've seen the trailer, you're like, well, no shit. Obviously, it's super fucking weird. Um, it does get very, very weird. I really like it. It doesn't really have an ending, but that kind of works for it. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. Fantastic. No, I, I haven't seen that. and um, But I have heard it recommended on a podcast recently. So there's a chance, maybe the Flophouse or something like that. So maybe that's where it came into your recommendations. Um, that is a mystery. But um, yeah, 
it, it's it's uh, it's definitely one that that's that's going on my list. So uh, nice one. All right, from me, Les Misérables, not the musical, obviously, but the French crime thriller, um, which is like The Wire meets La Haine, so La Wire possibly. Um, <laughs> great performances, great score. It's in cinemas now and only in cinemas, so I won't go too far into the plot, um, uh, other than to say it, it contains a simmering rage that's very current. Um, yeah, I, I really recommend it, Les Miserables. That's it on that, because, you know, I don't yeah, like fair. going in too much to, to things that people can't possibly have seen, um, but it is it is out now when, when they listen to this, so, yeah. Okay, what's next from you, Dan? Um, so this is actually one that uh, Nora recommended way back on the Arrow Insiders episode, and after we, uh, when we were going to be interviewing Nora for the live episode that we did for Fright Fest, I went back and re-listened to our episode to sort of like you know check that I wasn't going to cover too much of the same ground, and she recommended this at the end of it, and I was like, fuck yeah, I saw the trailer for that, and it looked amazing, and I just kind of forgot about it. Uh, and I look for it, and it's again, it's on pay Amazon. Uh, it's 2018 from Tillman Singer. It's Luz, L-U-Z. Um, oh, God, yeah, Luz is amazing. I fucking loved it. The the trailer the trailer blew me the fuck away at, like, end of 2017, early 2018. I absolutely fucking loved it. Uh, and then, like, it took ages to come out, and I kind of forgot about it. Uh, and then Nora recommended it, and I think I didn't know what she was talking about because of her pronunciation of Luz. Um, so I was like, what the fuck is this? And I looked it up and I'm like, fuck that thing with the ripped poster. That was, that looked incredible. Um, one thing I would say is that the poster sets it up as much more of like a sort of roller coaster than it is. It's much more a sort of insanely astute character piece. Um, Do you mean the trailer sets it up? The, the, yeah. What did I say? Poster. Ah, yeah. Well, forget that. The, the trailer. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. The, the trailer's very like, it, it, it's, it's quite sort of like, uh, electro bombast. And, and while it does have a really beautiful soundtrack, the film itself is not in any way frenetic. What it is, is absolutely inundated with top class performances. Um, uh, our male lead, whose name I am struggling to remember, uh, Johannes something. Anyway, he's amazing. And he, like, he turns on a dime for his performances in a way that is not normally required of an actor. Um, and it is just beautiful. There um, is one, you know, skating around spoilers, not making any kind of uh, spoilers, in fact. Uh, but there is one set piece in this film that is fucking astonishing. It's yeah. so well done. Like, if you described it, people would be like, what the fuck? But when you watch it, it just works so perfectly well. It's so good. And people who have seen it will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I know people who haven't seen it will hopefully watch it. Um, has it been released in the UK then? Because Yeah, yeah it's on It's on Amazon. You can rent or buy it. £3.49. Did it come out this year or did it come out last year? Or I don't know. I watched it in the last two weeks, yeah. so I don't know. I'm just wondering if... if um, yeah, if it, if it's a really recent release in this country, it may have slipped out. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible. There's a moment again, very much skirting around spoilers. Uh, there's a moment in the last act that reminds me of my favourite bit of Man Bites Dog. Yeah, uh, with like a stylistic choice that they make in this in this scene, and it just like when you realise what they're doing, what's going on, it's just like, oh fucking come on, that's so good. <laughs> Very much possession vibes as well in there yes. too. Yeah, what what a great film. Um, yeah, beautiful. Is that all on that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My next recommendation, my final recommendation, based on the past couple of weeks, is this Gun for Hire from nineteen forty-two. Oh, yes. Um, classic noir starring Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd. It is out today as this episode goes up uh, on Eureka Classics and would make an excellent double bill with Arrow Academy's The Glass Key, which yes. also stars Lake and Ladd and was also released in 1942. And actually, Alan Ladd is, is fourth billed in uh, this Gun for Hire, but he has such an impact. 
you can kind of see why he was promoted up the ladder and for the glass key and became like a, a leading man. Um, this gun for hire has everything you could possibly want from a noir. You've got Lake stunning femme fatale. You've got assassinations, blackmail, revenge. It has a, a wartime setting and that creates some interesting crises of conscience. I'll say no more. This gun for hire, I very much recommend it. And if you do have the glass key, uh, on our academy or, or even if you don't i recommend buying it yeah but yeah if you do have that then double bill it with this gunfire it'd be a, a lovely double bill a very solid double bill it's it's one of the darker like it's one of the more pessimistic noirs and uh and and those are always my favorites yeah me too so dan what is your final recommendation uh based on the past couple of weeks well i've already done vivarium and Luz, so i've done two but i'll take <laughs> we got turned around somehow so i ended up going first in the recentlies um i think maybe because we spoke for so long off the back of spun i had a bunch of backups for based ons i don't have any backups for recently um but i'm going to give you one of my backups for based ons yeah do it because <laughs> i have loads of films to recommend in um extra features so yeah go nuts well, so when I was sort of like, I was playing around with the idea of doing a like a little recipe for Withnell and I, like a, it's this plus this if you had to mix it. Um, and I couldn't get one that was quite right. But the the resonant ingredient in all of it was Monsieur Hulot's Holiday. Oh, wow. <laughs> because there is this really beautiful sort of whimsy to the, like the constant self-perpetuating failure that the two of them experience. Um, and and Monsieur Les Holiday, if you haven't seen it, is an unbelievably sweet uh, 1953 black and white French comedy uh, written by, directed and starring Jacques Tati, who's a, a sort of a, a god-tier French filmmaker. Yeah, it's, it's just a really sweet movie about a slightly inept man <laughs> going on holiday <laughs> and all of, the, all, all of the shit he can't do. I can't remember who released it, but um, there is a wonderful Tutti Blu-ray box set. Um, 100% recommend getting that because every single film in that set is a masterpiece. Just incredible. Um, Yeah, yeah. Grand. All right, well, shall we go into extra features? Let's do it. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Right. I have some extra features similar to, to last time. Just basically the rest of the films I saw at Fantasia, or, you know, the films that I loved that I saw at Fantasia, uh, really was an excellent festival, kind of like Cannes combined with the Arrow Video Fright Fest, you know, and it, it's the first online version, so that's why I was able to, quote-unquote, attend, um, but I'm definitely going to try and, and fly out for it next year if it does happen in person, uh, because these films were fantastic. So I'm just going to run through them very quickly. Um, Private Chat was like the Safdie's remade Vertigo through the red prism of cam girl culture. Gave me Buffalo 66 vibes, like an American tried to make a dark French New Wave film. But because of the fairy tale of the American dream, couldn't help but make it, in quotes, romantic. It will be divisive, but I loved it. Uh, Minor Premise uh, is an ideas film. Feels like uh, SF Masterworks author rewrote Fight Club. Uh, It's about a young scientist who tries to raise memories, but splits his mind into different emotional states, which take turns to dominate. Uh, Very, very good science fiction film. Uh, Come True, which was a dream logic movie, kind of a bit beyond the black rainbow meets Dream Warriors, uh, which is obviously high praise, but it's very stylish, beautiful grading. Um, uh, uh, Yeah, the ending will annoy some, but it worked for me. Uh, Feels Good Man um, is documentary about the the, uh, artist behind uh, Pepe the Frog, the the design that has become an alt-right symbol. Um, and it's kind of about the journey he went on with his creation. Um, yeah, it's kind of a bit death of the author, a bit dark magic of the internet, um, where, you know, stoner art gets transformed into a hate curse. Um, but yeah, it's a mixture of simple and complex, uh, in a very interesting way. Um, it just feels like it's going to grow in significance over the course of this year. Um, so yeah, feels good, man. Really great documentary. And then finally, the last three, <laughs> Shakespeare's Shitstorm has the passion of the director's <laughs> final film. It feels like Lloyd Kaufman's concluding thesis on culture, trauma, and his career as a whole. 
Um, it's got, you know, more passion than the past few Tribal movies. And yeah, it's got a, a quality of, of sadness to it, which uh, was quite surprising, as well as the normal uh, offensive ridiculousness, you know. Uh, it, only watch this if you love Troma already. Do not let this be your first Troma film. It will upset you, probably. Um, the Mortree Collection, which is uh, the anthology that's done a couple of festivals, uh, and it's actually a surprise sequel to a short that played Fright Fest in the same program as my first ever short. I won't say which one it was, because that's a spoiler, but it will be obvious if you see the movie. Um, but yeah, really enjoyable anthology, high production value, good fun. And then finally, The Dark and the Wicked from the writer, director of The Strangers. Uh, it's a bleak horror flick in the tradition of The Strangers, but with the meanness of satanic cinema. Um, it is a rough watch. There is not much hope in there. Um, and the atmosphere and tone is very oppressive. But if that's your thing, um, you know, it's not quite at the hereditary levels, but um, it's certainly looking up to, to being that kind of film. So, um, you know, it's aspiring to be that kind of film. So, yeah, The Dark and the Wicked is also good. Right. That is it from me in Extra Features. Dan, do you have any extra features? I have nothing. Oh, well, can you just <laughs> talk about some stuff, you know? I can't I can't talk about the one I've just finished uh, because it's going to be a surprise release that just appears into the world. Um, but I'm currently prepping to go out to Malta uh, for a picture called The Seed, uh, Sam Walker's directorial debut, uh, or feature debut, I should say. Uh, Sam's had a healthy career as a commercial director, but has done a few short films. He did a picture called, I think it's Kids and Ducks, uh, that was a big buzz on the horror like festival circuit a few years back. Uh, did another one that I really like called Bite Horse. Uh, I get to work with Hermes Pythikos, uh, who's a Greek artist who used to do some work for me. Uh, he was one of my sculptors on Double Date. Uh, he's moved back to Greece and he works with performance artists over there doing installation and performance art uh, as a sculptor uh, and is fantastic. He actually put me up for the job um, recommending me as a creature, uh, uh, like the guy to make the, the, the creatures in it. It's an alien film. Um, so it's really nice to get to see Hermes again. Um, and then, yeah, that, that's kind of what we're, what we're doing at the moment. There you go. <laughs> Love it. Good. I just hate it when I talk for ages. Like, I, I you know, I, I don't do this podcast to hear my own voice. I do it to hear your voice. So, um, yeah. you know, good. Good to hear what's going on with you. Right. We'll, we'll wrap it up because um, we're running along again. Should we remember to say our social media this time? Like, yeah. Like we didn't on the live one when <laughs> we had all those new listeners. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they can find us. Dan, how, how can the listeners this podcast find you? Um, I am at 13fingerfx uh, on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, I, I'm posting slightly more effectsy stuff at the moment because I'm allowed to to some extent because the director is doing a lot of that <laughs> so i can share those things um obviously also as the possessor pr effort ramps up i'm sharing more and more of that there's some the the the, the two t- trailers that have played recently the teaser and then the longer version for possessor uncut um because it was definitely not allowed an r rating <laughs> It's director's version. I'm very glad that uh, we're going to get to see the uncut version out in the world. Um, and then also, I've seen some, I've seen some bits related to some peripheral releases associated with the Possessor that I probably shouldn't talk about because I've not cleared it. But there's some very exciting other stuff sort of floating around that as well. Fantastic, fabulous. Um, as for me, uh, I'm probably going to front load this next time because I always forget to do it. Um, do not worry about my social media. There's nothing for you on there. But what I'm going to do now is take this opportunity to implore you to please write us a review, rate the podcast. I know in the early days of this podcast, I looked down my nose at this kind of thing. And I see at, at, at the idea of people doing doing this. And I think that it's partly my responsibility that we never really did this. And as it turns out, the reason that everybody said that you should do this is because that's the best way to find your audience. Yeah, it <laughs> um, is. And to find, you know, new people. So um, I'm changing my tune and I am uh, asking everyone listening to this, 
If you like this podcast, please do give us a review or a rating or both. Um, because, you know, if we don't start getting more listeners soon, not that we don't appreciate the ones we have, but, you know, we could always grow and we don't want to get fired. We don't want this um, podcast to end suddenly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not putting that on your shoulders, precious arrowheads. It's not your responsibility, but you could help us survive. So, yeah. um, you know, do that, please, if, if you, you can. If you haven't already left a beautiful five-star review. Yes, del- there you go. Del- delicious arrowheads <laughs> please on whatever platform you use uh whether it's one of the two <laughs> that that we are on uh please please leave us a review please tell a friend please uh write it into birthday cards for your elderly relatives uh burn it into the side of a hill overlooking your hometown with petrol and light it ablaze so that everybody can know that you, I mean, you don't even have to say Arrow Video Podcast at that point. You can just do five stars. They'll get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Write it on the side of a bullet and shoot it into a wall. Yes, that we need. We need to get to that difficult to crack forensics market. <laughs> um, and on that, I'm going to say thank you <laughs> sincerely. Thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next, next time. time. Next bye. time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.